I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. This is kind of a special or odd episode. It really is a sermon or a session that I gave at Bible Chapel of Delhi Hills, a church on the west side of Cincinnati. And I attempted in one hour to encapsulate the big ideas that we're trying to put out at It's Good to Be a Man. I think I got them out there. I'm still getting better at it. Nonetheless, I think you'll enjoy it. And we wanted to put it out there for you guys to listen to and, and be able to share with your friends. So let me know what you think. We always are appreciative of reviews and feedback. And I hope this is uh, helpful to your growth in Christ as a man. Father. Father God, bless this time. We thank you that we have a sure word, Lord, that your word will never, ever fade away. Father, I pray that we would be missionaries, missionaries to men. We tell them that they cannot find their meaning, their purpose, or anything, their salvation outside of you. And Father, we thank you that you love us and that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers, though, are few, Lord. So make us laborers. God, we pray that you bring men back to the church, godly, strong men that fear you and take the battle to the enemy. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One second. Well, uh, I just want to get right into it, guys. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'll figure out how to put this in full view. There we are. So I intend to end with some really practical stuff, but uh, first we need to do a little theology. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. I want you to look at verses 27 and 28, and then we'll skip down to 31. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then skipping down to verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So any biblical doctrine of sexuality has to start right with these verses. That's where you have to go to. It's where it begins. And for our purposes tonight, I I only want to make a few very basic observations from this text, but we're in a we're in a stage of insanity right now in our culture where we have to go back to the basics. Things have gone so wild. You just keep thinking, can it get any weirder? And I don't know that it can. I mean, people think they're cheetahs, right? Guys can become girls. Girls can become guys. It's just, it's really true insanity. And so we need to get right back to what Scripture says on this. And Scripture is not unclear. Very helpful. So first, here's my first uh, point for you. Mankind, and that's what the Hebrew calls it, not people or humanity, mankind, uh, is a general category which includes two variations, male and female. Right there it says, male and female, he created them. That's God. He came up with that idea. Down in verse 31, it also says it's very good. So it's good to be your sex. It's good to be a man. And I'm going to come back to that 
in a second. The second observation from this text is that both varieties of mankind are equally made in the image of God. Uh, this is to say, in old confessional language, I see you've got some reform stuff up here. That's great. I'm a subscriber to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You guys might be familiar with it. It's, uh, the 1689 is a cut and paste of it with bad polity in it. So, just teasing. Just teasing. I love my Baptist brothers. How would Presbyterians have any uh, converts without you? I don't know what we would do. Um, we'd be in real trouble. But in old confessional language, what it means to bear the image of God, at least at some level, is, uh, hang on here, that man and woman both was created with reasonable and immortal souls endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. In this sense, male and female are absolutely the same. They're the same, identical. Neither is greater or lesser. They're both equally mankind and have equal access to their creator as Galatians 3.28 teaches through Jesus Christ. And to deny that fact is a terrible sin and it is a heresy to deny that. By the way, Galatians 3.28 is a favorite proof text of radical egalitarians. They're feminists. They love that text. And here's exactly what it says. There is neither Jew no Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ. There you have it. That's what they'll say. See? Sexual distinctions don't matter in Christ. The gospel is the great equalizer. And it sounds pious, doesn't it? But it is hogwash. It is absolute foolishness. The context of Galatians 3.28 is not mysterious. It's very clear. It's talking about access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Listen to the preceding verses, verses 26 and 27. For you all, sons of God, through, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's simply saying that God isn't a God of partiality. Anyone is welcome into God's family through the blood of his son. In this sense, your background your station of life, your sex. They don't matter. It, however, isn't saying that God will obliterate all distinctions. God is the maker of sex. It's his good design, and he's not going to eliminate. He's not going to get rid of it. Radical feminists were teaching this out of Willow Creek. Uh, Gilbert Blazikian was a big guy pushing this idea. But it's just not what it says. Just go look at it. You know, never, ever read a single Bible verse. Right? Read a paragraph. Always reading units of thought. Right? It's not Christian uh, fortune cookies. Right? There's, there's rational meaning behind it. But we do want to be careful to maintain that all people have equal access to God through Christ and that all of mankind, male and female, equally bear God's image. To say otherwise, again, is a heresy and must be resisted. Thankfully, it's a rare thing to see anyone inside the church to say otherwise. Who are these people saying this? I always hear people bring it up online. Where? You got a link? You got a sermon? Want to hear it? So, of course, there's some guy out in the desert that managed to get like a satellite internet that said something like that. But to act like this is normal, that's in, insane. It's stressed about, if anything's stressed about human sexuality and evangelicalism, it is the equality of the sexes. And that point's been made ad nauseum over and over and over again. Trust me, I listened to your church's sermons on this to know what I was getting into. I listened to Ray Sauer's Sunday school on First Timothy 2. I wanted to know what sort of church I was going to be teaching at. It was a good sermon. Or a good Sunday school. I appreciate it. 
I wanted to know like how quick I had to run out of here at the end of this. Um, we are failing to stress things, though. What we're failing to stress is that equality isn't sameness. And secondly, our God-given sexual distinctions are central to our entire existence. We're failing to stress that. In other words, no one exists as a mere person. There are no generic humans. You are either male or female. Scripture absolutely rejects androgyny. Androgyny is the quality or state of being neither specifically feminine or masculine. Somewhere in the middle. So type in androgyny, if you dare, into Google, and you'll see. But you can think of 1980s David Bowie, right, where he's trying to blur the line. God hates that. According to Genesis 1, these two sexes are part of God's good design. He's the one that came up with it. The sexes, though equally mankind, are different by God's design. So these distinctions between the two sexes, whatever they may be, whatever they are, before we even get to them, whatever they are, are undeniably good because they originate from the mind of God. They are an enduring part of his beautiful creation. People love waterfalls. They're so pretty. And birds and creation. We went to the Cincinnati Zoo and uh, watched that hippo, you know, do hippo things. My kids are having fun. And it's amazing, right? And, you know, you go to a Christian bookstore and there's like some verse out of context with a pretty little eagle. Um, and, uh, yeah, we should love creation. We should. God, God's beautiful. Even in its marred, fallen state, creation's amazing. Honorable. It, it, it testifies to the goodness of God. If the stars testify to the goodness of God, don't you think our sexuality, mankind, the chief piece of his creation, testifies to the goodness of God as well? You are attacking God if you attack biblical sexuality. You are insulting the Creator. It's a terrible thing. And that didn't exist perfectly just in a, or it wasn't good just in a pristine pre-fall world. Binary sexuality, male, female. And so I'm sure there's engineers here. It's a reformed church. So are there, is there an engineer here? No? They're always, out. oh, see, oh, I knew it. So you guys get it. Um, Though marred by the fall in Genesis 3 remains intact, as clearly demonstrated by Jesus. In Matthew 19. Matthew 19, he says, uh, he answers, he's in this argument. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's reasserting the creation ordinance, the created order, and he's applying it to a present circumstance in front of him. In other words, saying, this is still binding. This is still true. And that's clearly a post-fall positive affirmation of binary sex. There are no, there, there are not five bazillion sexes or genders. I don't use gender. You'll probably notice that. Um, gender is a social construct. Sex is a biological, spiritual reality. So um, that's why I stick to that language on purpose. Uh, there are lots of different genders because it's that's rooted in sociali- sociality, right? Um, anyway, moving on. Um, but let's take it even further. So Jerome, the man who did the Latin Vulgate, right? Jerome said, If the woman shall not rise again as a woman, nor the man as a man, there will be no resurrection of the body, for the body is made up of sex and members. And so I think Jerome's right. 
Uh, the doctrine of the resurrection revindicates the goodness of the body and therefore sexuality. The resurrection doesn't change the substance of our bodies. The substance is the same, uh, but rather the qualities. The qualities are different. And so they, Jesus was still human. They kind of recognized him. There was something different about his, his uh, post-resurrected body, that glorified body. There's different qualities. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15. So there's a difference. Uh, there's a watermelon seed and a watermelon. Same stuff, different qualities. Okay? And that's the, the, the uh, distinction set up there in 1 Corinthians. So uh, Jesus had a real body. Jesus in the incarnation had a real human male body, and he currently has and always will have the same male body in his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. If you go look at any of the confessions or catechisms, I'm reformed, I know you guys are, uh, but you look at them, they're going to say that Jesus was raised in the self-same body. They're going to emphasize that. It's very important. You reject that. This goes into all sorts of crazy Christological heresies. Um, what I'm trying to get you to see here tonight is how sexuality is related to some key doctrines that I know you love and care about. Um, so Jesus right now is a male. And he forever will be. It's amazing that God... God what? What is he? He's the God... Man! The God male. He's not an androgynous spirit. He's a man. That's what Scripture says. Listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians 15, because it gives us an awesome promise for you old guys. I'm catching up to you. 39, not that old, but some of you older guys know. Listen, listen to this promise, brothers. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You're going to be like Jesus. He's the first fruit. Now, a resurrected body. You're going to get one of those. Everything's falling apart, waking up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, Right? Can't get anywhere anymore. You're like a woman when you travel, stopping at every rest area. It's embarrassing. I know how it works for some of us. Keeps going. For since by a man death, or for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So your new body will be a glorified body. Unlike your old body, it won't perish. And it isn't weak. It's perfect. Everything is perfect about it. However, it very much remains a human body, which means maleness and femaleness. That's part of the original design. And that will be your, you will always be a man. Forever and ever and ever. In other words, binary sexuality existed pre-fall, post-fall, and will continue with the restoration of all things in the world to come. So males are males forever. Females are females forever. Binary sexuality is forever. We won't be androgynous spirits in the world to come. Man will forever be a body-spirit composite. Spirit and body. God brought them together. It's part of his good design. In biblical anthropology, anthropology is the doctrine of what it means to be a man. Uh, biblical anthropology always keeps body and spirit together, and in doing so undermines two prevalent anthropological errors. So errors dealing with sexuality. I'm going to give them to you. And if you read, especially uh, like old pagan Greek sources, uh, th- these come up all the time. The first is man as a body-trapped spirit. This is where our human nature is divorced from our biological nature. 
And I'd argue this is an assumption that runs deep in modern Christianity and has contributed to the current sexual chaos that's being experienced across all denominations. Uh, This is the modern version of the Greeks, think the Gnostics. It basically sees matter, physical stuff, physicality, as intrinsically evil or somehow lesser than the spirit. So the spirit has to escape uh, the prison house of the soul. I love John Calvin. I love him. I don't just read books about him. I read him. I don't think I've ever... If he's written something on it, I read it before I preach on it. This is one of the few areas that I think Calvin's made some mistakes. Calvin was very sickly. and His body is really weak. And he would often refer to the body as a prison house. And that's a, I think it's a mistake. It's a tattered tent that will get renovated. But it's not something to escape. It's something that needs to be resurrected. But then again, if I'm waking up in the middle of the night throwing up, and all, I, mean, I might start saying that. When I'm old and things fall apart even more, maybe I'm like, "Okay, Calvin, I'm sorry." Um, but look, it's not—it's not a prison; right? it's part of you. So that's the first one. The second one is man as a biological machine. This is where our human nature is reduced to our biological nature, to our appetites and impulses and our desires. Basically, man is just a machine. Uh, programmed by evolution to have certain desires. And it only falls in that there's nothing wrong with embracing our natural inclinations. Lust. This error doesn't deny the body, but the spirit. So the other one denies the body. This one denies the spirit. All man is, is a body. It's not corrupted. Freedom in this system is surrendering to your nature. Therefore, if it feels good, if it serves your desire, then do it. And this is old too. It's not just the Greeks. This is the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees? They rejected angels and the resurrection of the body in the afterlife. Old lies don't go away. They just get repackaged. You know. So one error denies the goodness of the body and defines redemption as the soul's freedom from the body. I think that runs deep in modern evangelicalism. I think modern evangelicalism is largely Gnostic at this point. Right? They have assumptions that there's something wrong with stuff, right? Physical stuff. It's marred, it's corrupted, but it's good. You know, the future world's not like little clouds. God is really going to fix all this. It's going to be the way it should be. God has no plan B. It's all plan A. It's all, it's been plan A the whole time. Uh, so that's one error. The other error denies the reality of the soul and sees no need for the body's redemption. And that's just paganism. That's just paganism. That's all most, that's what, uh, evolutionary, uh, psychology really turns into. This hedonism. This given to your desires. You know, I think Tony Robbins and that sort of stuff. Both are wrong. Both are an attack on biblical anthropology. Both must be rejected because both rob us of hope and God of glory. That's what this is about. God's glory. Says it up there on the wall, right in the middle. The testimony of Scripture shows that these doctrines are false. You aren't a mere soul. You're not a mere body. You're a soul in a body. In other words, to be human is to be both spirit and body. Physicality is an essential part of our humanity. When was the last time you did something without your body? What do we await in the intermediate state, resurrection to life. What do the damned await? Resurrection to death. This is a big, big deal. 
This isn't just about who can teach in the church and who does the dishes and all these silly, not that those arguments don't matter, but they miss the scope of this. They miss the importance of this doctrine. And when you get in this complementarian world that I've lived in for a while, it's who can teach and can women work outside the house? I've had that question asked five bazillion times. And I'm happy to answer it, but let's back up a little bit and talk some theology. Let's, like, realize there's more at stake than this. There's a lot. (sighs) Biological sex will not be eliminated in the bodily resurrection because it's precisely a resurrection of the body. So the body is good. Sexuality is good. Femaleness is good. And maleness is good. It is God that made you female. Or There's no female here, but it's God who... If you're, I don't know if there's going to be women or not. Um, hopefully there's not womanly men, but we'll talk about that in a second. It's God who made you male. Therefore, you should embrace your sex as a gift from God. Your biological sex is a central part of God's revealed will for your life. It affects every single thing you do every day. If you're male, live like a man. If you're female, live like a woman. To live any other way is to rebel against the nature God assigned you at conception and a sure path to misery. You want to read something terrible? The answer is no. But if you have my weird habits, you'll read the testimonies of people 10 years after they're trans, after they went from being a man to a woman, right? After they mutilated their body. People took money and said, I'll mutilate your body for you. And the regrets they have, it's just, it's heartbreaking, right? It really is. You reject your sex, and you're going to live misery. Because it's not how you're meant, meant to be. Now, I know this is simple stuff, and I know it's basic and fundamental. And yet, this doctrine that our sexuality is good, that women ought to be feminine, and men ought to be masculine, is absolutely under attack. There is a war on sexuality. But you're men. So I want to talk to you about the war on masculinity right now. It's not a new one, but its intensity keeps ramping up. I mean, it's getting intense. Misandry, that is the hatred of men, or masculinity, is at a fever pitch right now. Now, uh, you see it in our society, in our culture, and they'll equivocate, and they'll say, no, no, we're against toxic masculinity. We're not against masculinity. Really. What do you mean by toxic masculinity? And a few months ago, the American Psychological Association, the APA, released its first set of official guidelines for working with boys and men. So these guidelines are going to be used by psychologists, therapists, counselors, and certainly influence the policies of different governmental agencies, namely public schools. They have far-reaching consequences. And here's what the New York Times reported on these guidelines. The guidelines, 10 and all, posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ideology are often negatively affected in terms of mental and physical health. They go on. They acknowledge that ideas about masculinity vary across cultures, age groups, but they point to common themes. I wonder why there's common themes. Maybe it's... God's design. Who knew? Um, but there's common themes like anti-femininity, achievement, <laughs> a skewal of appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. Wait a second. 
hold up there. Um, toxic masculinity, it, it sure sounds like normal masculinity to me. It sounds like being a man, right? Uh, it's negative that boys are anti-feminine, that they don't want to be a chick. They don't want to be a woman. It's negative that boys want to achieve and be strong. It's negative that boys are driven to rule and subdue the earth and therefore are driven towards adventure, risk, and even violence. It's insane. This is insane. It's nonsense. And yet it will be mainstreamed through the public schools and government agencies. It's exactly who's been pushing this. There's a lot of tipping points in this history, but the biggest one is Alfred Kenzie. And his, uh, he's a, a devil from Bloomington, Indiana. And he wrote a couple of reports that, uh, that really, it was in the 50s. And it took root, though, in the 60s and 70s. And you start seeing things just like go crazy quick. I thought, I thought for sure that no-fault divorce was like 50s. You know when no-fault no divorce happened? Anyone know? 1969. You know who you can think for it? Reagan, <laughs> uh, well, and he got Nancy in turn, I guess, right? Um, but 1969, birth control, as in the pill, that's 1970 at the same time. All that stuff can be traced there as a tipping point. And you, these things are going to have incredible results. And what we're seeing right now is uh, things spread quicker. So look at the sort of critical race theory debate that's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, men that were like, rock. Solid, like five years ago, have like flippity flopped. And you're like, what is going on? Well, we're seeing this happen with egalitarianism and feminism, where things that we, we never thought would happen are just whew, coming through. And it's, it's a, it's an intense time. And this is exactly what Christina Hoff Summers warned about in her book, The War on Boys. It was published about 20 years ago. She said, we are turning against boys. And forgetting a simple truth, that the energy and competitiveness and corporal uh, daring of normal, decent males is responsible for much of what is right in the world. Amen, right? The world needs men. But the feministic spirit of the age labels masculinity as a social ill. It sees traditional masculinity as toxic, something to be treated, not encouraged. There's an intense governmental and cultural pressure to feminize men as they label masculine tendencies as destructive. Essentially, right now, in the mainstream, we see men as defective women. That's what's happened. Little boys. Not all of them have ADHD. They're little boys. They're not like girls. Girls, uh, they mature quicker. They're more compliant when they're at that age. I've got two. Way different than those boys I had, that's for certain. Wearing my hand out, those boys. But, um, but yeah, they're going to they're gonna act different in an educational environment, especially when it's heavily policed like government schools. And so now we're drugging them up to make them more compliant. You know, Adderall and all this stuff. I'm not saying that some of those things aren't real. That's, that's, not, that's not my axe to grind right now. My point is that boys and girls are different. And we see all this pressure to treat men as if they should be women. I don't want to cry. I cry all the time. Why is everyone trying to get me to cry? What's with that? 
I don't want my sons to cry. You know what's, you know what happens when men learn to have emotional outbursts all the time? School shootings happen. Right? We are dangerous. So I told a girl, I said, if you hit me right now, I don't think you can turn my head. If I hit you, there's a good chance I'll kill you. Understand? There's a difference between me and you. That's huge. I have to teach my sons to control their emotion and aim them. They have to learn how to deal with strength. But we have culture that's like, oh, just be like women. No, please. You know, my wife, I remember my wife slapped me. This is going on recording. My wife, when we're, when we're dating, she slapped me once. And she slapped me, and my head was like, like this. I was like, never do that again. If you're a man, it would be very different, right? But there, she's just small. She's tiny, and I'm not. And even if I wasn't small, our, our, our bodies are built different. Our skins literally are not as soft as women's. Our bones are shaped different. They're more angular. Women's bones are softer. And then I got all this testosterone. It's coursing through me, as do you. We're different. And that's good. That's God's design. And they're wrong, though. Maleness is part of God's design, but this misandry is the, the air we breathe right now. It's the water we swim in. And we've all, all, including me, absorbed it in one way or another. Even in the church, even in the church, the negativity towards men and male tendencies is, you see it. And I'll give you the great example, okay? The great example is, just think of a Mother's Day sermon versus a Father's Day sermon. Preachers tend to gush over mothers in their congregation. They praise them for the sacrifice and hard work, and I think that's good. Uh, faithful mothers should be praised. But Father's Day sermons, all bets are off, man. They're, all, they're often used as an opportunity to critique men, to highlight the failure of, of fathers. And more often than not, men are illustrated as useless oafs. Men are made out to be like Homer Simpson or any pointless sitcom father of the last, what, 25 years. And I think that demonstrates that we've absorbed some of the culture's antagonistic attitudes towards men and fathers in particular. Besides this, the church focuses heavily on topics and adopts a tone that will be welcoming to women and repulses men. This is actually not bad. This is pretty good. But a lot of churches, there's like flowers everywhere. and You're in the men's bathroom and it's like, you call the thing that all the food's in on Thanksgiving? Corn cook? Why don't they stick that in the men's bathroom? <laughs> what do I care? All right. How about David like holding Goliath's head? I can use the restroom to that. Right? I come in the I go into the restroom and not only do I come out relieved, but ready to fight. I like that idea. But as you look at um, at even the designs of the churches, they're, they're, they lean towards towards women. Men feel uncomfortable. Remember, my wife was doing when we first got married. I was like, look, can I have a room or something? Can we work this out? You know, all this lace and girly stuff. Like, so now we've, we've arrived. We've found a good design. I'm comfortable there now. <laughs> but you can also see it in the Jesus is my boyfriend music. You're in a church and you're like, what am I seeing? What is happening right now? Is this boys to men? Am I singing a boys to men song to Jesus? And, so they come to the end of the music's high pitched, high pitched a lot of times, right? These golden voices. Men, I, it's hard to follow a woman when she sings, but it's easy for a woman to follow a man. Everyone knows that. I lo- I'm glad that we sung a hymn. I love hearing men sing together. That bass, that strength, 
You know, I love it. But not just that. There's also, you can see in the overly emotive, soft preaching that refuses to take risks. The road to hell is paved with adverbs. Did you know that? Maybe we think, possibly, that all those L-Y words, they're always weakening their statements, right? Because they've given you a backdoor out. But a manly preacher, I know it's adverb, but a manly preacher <laughs> will come right at it. Rules are made to be broken, my friends. He'll, he won't give you a backdoor unless scripture is that ambiguous and wants to give you a backdoor. Right? He'll preach the text and not apologize for it. And that's what we need. That's what we need. Anytime I preach First, or first Timothy 2, I'm like, I love this. Isn't this great? If I wanted a text to tell me the right view on women teaching, I can't make this text any clearer. There's like nothing else I can do. It's so nice. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a text like that on baptism or something? I mean, it would be really helpful. Um, but... Uh, I'm just teasing, guys. Guys, I, I, I love you guys. I'm, we, we, I believe in the church, Catholic, little c. It should be no wonder that the evangelical church is on average 60% male. And you say that's just 10%. But that's nuts. Islam is 80% male. Orthodox Jews, about 75%. And the fact that we're 60% uh, female is a very strange thing. Greek Orthodox is pretty close to parity. Roman Catholic is, again, close to evangelicals. It wasn't always that way, but it's been that way a long time. Cotton Mather complains about it way back in the founding of our nation. Um, But men clearly don't like church, and everyone knows that on a whole. We're talking about a general theme here. This is a problem. John K. White said, A devastating criticism of Christianity is many men see it as not only irrelevant, but as effeminate. Christianity is overwhelmingly associated with women, as in its modern version, it favors the feminine. So a man feels, senses, whatever you want to call it, that he has to make a choice between being masculine or being Christian. It's not true. It's not true. But they do feel that way. They do. Where is the manly man at? Where are they at? There's a few in the church. Praise God for them. But man, we need them. The world needs men. The culture is against men, and men really find refuge from the onslaught in emasculated or feminized churches today. Another way, another lens to look at this dilemma, this war of manhood, is through the lens of shame. When I step on a nail, right, I feel pain. Done it. More times than I wish I had. I grew up on a farm. used to run around barefoot. And every once in a while, find a nail the wrong way. And so I would step on the nail, and that's, I'd feel the pain. And the pain is my body saying, stop that. Don't step on nails. It's bad. And when I sin, I feel shame. That's my spirit or my conscience saying, stop that. Romans chapter 2. The pagans, their loss of themselves, accusing or excusing them. They know that, they know that God's judgment's on them. Why do you think they create all those silly religions trying to placate God? Won't work. Only Jesus will work. But they, they feel shame when they do things they shouldn't. Shame like pain is an uncomfortable but necessary teacher. It exhorts us to turn from doing something destructive. And when we do something sinful, it's good that we feel shame. I want you to feel shame when you sin. I'm not sorry. It's good. God strengthened our shame. So I would sin less. I want to be holy. 
Jesus died, rose again, so I could live to God's glory. Shame's good. However, there's a flip side. We shouldn't feel pain when we use our body as designed. Uh, when you move an arm or a leg within its normal ma- range of motion, it shouldn't hurt. Some mornings I wake up in the bed and I sit up and I'm like, ah, like that's not normal. My body bends that way. This should, I shouldn't hurt this way. It's not good. Something's wrong. I'm, I'm dying is what's happening. We all are. We're falling apart. But we shouldn't feel pain. That's saying something's wrong. It should just feel fine. Likewise, you shouldn't feel ashamed of things that are good and holy. You shouldn't feel ashamed of the gospel. You shouldn't be ashamed of having holy speech, brothers. You shouldn't feel ashamed of possessing your vessel in honor, being sexually pure. There should be no shame there. None whatsoever. And as a pastor, I've worked with female sex abuse victims. And I've noticed a tendency in them to be ashamed of their femininity. And it manifests in, in many different ways. In their posture, their clothing, eye, eye contact. You know a lot about eyes, right? Like shifty eyes, they don't want to connect. There's little empty eyes. I don't know how that happens, but you see it. You see it from people that come from households of intense abuse, whether physical or sexual. And what I notice more than anything is that they mute their sexuality. Right? They wear really baggy clothes to hide things. Why? It's because their sexuality attracted a predator towards them, and they feel like they make them vulnerable, and they feel ashamed of being a woman. And uh, they, they associate with pain. And that's terrible. Women should not be ashamed of their femininity. Right? <laughs> they should. We all agree, I hope. But neither should men feel ashamed of their masculinity. It's good to be a man. And yet our culture mocks, ridicules, and shames men for being masculine. They make fun of them. Listen to 1 Corinthians, uh, well actually, let me say this. That's exactly the opposite of what scripture does. In scripture, it's the effeminate man who is shamed. That's who's shamed in scripture. Let me prove it to you. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So this text gives us a partial list of lifestyle sins which will keep you out of heaven. And I say lifestyle because it's clearly not talking about isolated acts of these sins, but a life which is dominated and controlled by these sins. That's what it's talking about. These defiling and damning sins of which, that's what they are, the damning sins which we must repent. Uh, and Paul says, such were some of you. So if you're a Christian, you know something of the life-changing power of the Spirit of God. Some of you were fornicators. Some of you were drunkards and so forth. But God has washed you. Now you're new. It's great. But look again at the list and note that being effeminate is included as a soul-damning sin. Now, if that bothers you, that's your problem. And you need to repent. God stuck it there. Now, depending on your translation, effeminate may not be included in your list. Some modern translations conflate effeminate and homosexual. And so if you have a ESV, they leave it out. And if you have a modern NIV, at least, 
I don't know if the 1985 does, but they changed everything after. They integrated TNIV translation in 2012, so that's what the current one uses. It, they leave it out. But it's there in the Greek, man. Go check the Greek. It's there. And there are two very different words, malakoi and arsenikoite, and they don't mean the same thing. This is why the distinctions maintained in uh, Wyclef's Bible, Tyndale's, the Genevan, Luther's translation of the Bible. It's also found in the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible as well. They, they all have it there. And Arsenikoite is rightly translated as men who have sex with men. That's the NIV, or in a lot of other modern translations, simply as homosexuals. It's referring to men that lie with other men. Right? It has the actual sex act in mind. That's what it's talking about. Malakoi, on the other hand, refers to a soft man or a man who plays the woman, hence the effeminate man. Translators justify, modern translators, justify conflating the two by saying that arsenikoite refers to the active partner and Malachi to the passive partner in the homosexual uh, sex act, pitchers and catchers, you know. But this is wrong. It's, it's, not, it's just not true. Uh, first off, why have two words that mean the same thing? Uh, under arsenikoite covers both passive and active. Uh, but more importantly, it's, it's uh, clearly a broader category. It refers uh, to any way a man takes on a feminine uh, posture or, or way of life. Uh, Tim Bailey wrote a book called The Grace of Shame. He's a pastor that I used to go to his church. I highly recommend the book. It's really good. There's two chapters in particular on uh, effeminacy that will be very helpful to you. And they go through the whole history. Right? I'm not going to get into it. But there's, there's no debate how this word was used in ancient Greek language or, or in, even you look at scripture. What, we talked about like John the Baptist. Would you go to see a man in, in effeminate clothing? Right? That's actually what he says. Soft clothing, that's malakoi. Soft clothing. Right? Like fancy, dancy clothing. You know? That's what he's saying. But Tim puts it well in his book, The Grace of Shame. He says, The effeminate or soft men sin not only when they play the woman in bed, but also when they play the woman in the way they live outside the bedroom. Playing the woman is not something that Malakoi take on and off before and after intercourse. It is their lifestyle. It is their character. This sinful character is condemned by both the ancient world and God in his word. It is the sin of effeminacy. The Bible declares the effeminate will not inherit heaven. Living contrary to the sex God made him bars the effeminate man from the kingdom of God. So it's, it's good to be a man, but it's not good to be an effeminate man. Effeminacy, like all the other sins in 1 Corinthians 6, is shameful. And it's a sin to be repented of. Let me pause for a moment and make it clear that there is nothing wrong with femininity. Femininity is beautiful and essential. The world needs femininity, just like the world needs masculinity. But here's the thing. Uh, men have a feminine side as much as dogs have a feline side. Right? I introduced my wife as this is my feminine half. Right? Here's my feminine side. This is all I got. Her. She's all the estrogen I need um, in my life. Well, that's not totally true. But nonetheless... Men don't have a feminine side. Now, it's normal and natural for a cat to meow. It's what they do. But it's strange and unnatural when you hear a dog meow. Okay? So it is with femininity. It's beautiful in women, but repulsive in men. 
So saying effeminacy is sinful isn't a dig at femininity. I have any problem with that. It's a dig at a dog meowing. It's a dig at a man who God made male acting like a woman. That's repulsive. Women sway their hips more when they're ovulating. Like We like that women walk. I, I like that my wife walks that way. At least, um, they sway their hips more. Um, it's crazy. They did studies on it. But you ever seen a man like walk and sway his hip? You know, remember I went to Vegas once. Saw a lot of guys walking that way. It's, it's just like it's gross. Grosses you out because that's how chicks walk. That's how women walk. That's how guys walk. Um, it's gross. It's shameful. And exactly what our culture is trying to normalize. And we have to resist doing so. Every time I bring this up, people want a list of what is and what isn't effeminate. Some of you are already thinking it. And I'll be the first to admit that it is very difficult to come up uh, with a list uh, because I'm part of this culture. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit's working and opening my eyes to see these sorts of sins in my own life, to repent. It is difficult. Uh, but I do want to give you at least two examples. Okay, So first, consider Nahum 3.13, where God is calling Nineveh, the city of blood, calling them out. And God says, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. And I don't usually quote the NLT, but I like it here. I think it's closer to what the Greek's saying. It's even blunter. Your troops will be as weak and helpless as women. And the gates of your land will be open wide to the enemy and set on fire and burned. That's God. God, speaking through his prophet, God said that. Your troops will be as weak and helpless as women. Can you imagine saying that nowadays on a college campus? God says it, though. Shouldn't we emulate God? Shouldn't we use biblical rhetoric? Biblical rhetoric is a a whole tool belt. There's all sorts of ways, things to say. Um, But he's blunt and he says it. Now, is this is the problem women? Of course the problem is not uh, I don't want a woman stronger than me. You know? I always think of Napoleon Dynamite, where that guy is married to that bodybuilder, Darla. It's just like big buff woman. <laughs> I don't want a woman that can take me in a fight. No, a man does. You know, carry me around. Um, the problem is that the, these men are, are acting like women act in battle. They're not good soldiers. They're not good soldiers. I know this one girl. She's not a good soldier. She may have got the job done, but I guarantee the psychological effects is harder on her than it is on a man. Guarantee it. It's a fact. Undeniable. So what, is God a misogynist? Are you more holy than God? Does this offend you? Does it offend you that God says that? Repent. Repent. It's his language. I'm just quoting scripture. And what's going on is the creator understands his creation. He knows how women are made. You know, women don't make good soldiers. They're weaker and more prone to fear. I'm the one going, like, I don't, when I hear a bump in the night, I'm like, Emily, go check it. I'm not sending her out there. Because <laughs> I'll hear another, like, thud. And I'm like, oh, now i got to go get this guy. You know, um, no, the guys are going out there. That's what's going on. Duh. Men, however, are hormonally, physically, and temperamentally made to face down this world. Adam, go, go out, Adam. 
I don't want to be, I don't want to be known as a coward, do you? Coward, right? Someone says that. So, you ever heard, oh, that woman's a real coward. You ever heard that? Who says that? No one says that. Of course she's a coward. She's a woman, right? Now, we will talk about the brave mother, like, fighting the bear, lifting up the car. You hear the, the save her children. You hear about that. But uh, we don't expect the women to go out there and fight. I'll do it. I want to. I uh, was big into... Our family was big into home birth. I participated in it. Um, now, like most guys, I was like, okay, is it safe? How much does it cost? Like, in our house? Like, that's where... In a pool of water? You, the baby... And so this was our first child, and and Em was trying to win me over to it. My wife's Emily. She's trying to win me over to home birth, and I'm like, all right. So we go to this Bradley class over in uh, Fort Mitchell, and we're in this basement with these other couples. And they're having us watch these videos, right, of of women, like, in nature having babies, like Amazonian women, you know, because a woman thinks that persuades, persuades a guy. And these women are, like, having, they're just having babies, and they're not screaming or anything. It's very, very disturbing to me. I was like, huh, this is messed up. So we're watching this, and, and all those guys are, like, sinking down more and more. Like, is this sin? Are we sinning? Like, what's going on? And uh, at least that's what I was thinking. Um, and so she, like, turns it off. And, and all the women are, like, oh, taking notes and stuff. And all, our guy, all those guys are, like, just, like, looking down, right? And so she says, uh, what do you guys think? And um, we're all quiet. This other guy had just gone back from Iraq or Afghanistan. This was... 2006, and he said, uh, you know, I saw my friend disappear into a mist of blood in an eyeball, and that's still the worst thing I've ever seen. (laughs) But women, women are okay with it, right? Emily hates when I say this. First one, I was in the tub. I was in the tub. I caught the baby, like you catch a fish. Next one, I'm beside the tub, right? And the one after that, I'm in the other room, like, uh, eating, watching, like, a show. Call me when this thing gets on. And then i like, good job. You know, what am I going to do? You know, um, but women are strong, right? They are strong. I, I couldn't do that. It's terrifying. I've seen them all be born. Um, and, but, but we do. We do fight. We're made for it. So that's, that's the direction our strength goes. Out. And her, her strength is connected to these children. Right? She, she's fruitful, beautiful. Men are made to fight. Nehemiah 4.14 After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. That's where our strength starts. Who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Fight. Fight. Be aggressive. I want some violence, but holy violence. How do you think we got this country? Why do you think we're safe? Because of holy violence. Right? It's good. Sports are ritualized warfare. It doesn't matter if it's a tennis court, soccer field, or in between the end zones. These are environments where men prove their mettle. They demonstrate that they have skill, toughness, and determination. Moreover, they learn chain of command and how to work alongside a band of brothers. Sports are about becoming a warrior. And that's why we love it. Women don't get it. They don't get it. Like Bobby Knight. You guys know who Bobby Knight is? I lived in Bloomington for a while. Through the chair. Or Bob Huggins. Think how they talk to their players. 
Like, oh my goodness. Imagine a woman having a guy talk to them that way. But the guys respect it. They want to get to the pinnacle of their performance. They want to win. And these guys are pushing them. If you had a good coach, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I threw my headgear once when I got off a match. And I ran suicides I don't know how long. My feet were bleeding, man. I never threw my headgear again. Learned to have respect for the sport. Get out there and win. Made me tough. We're made to fight. We're made to engage. We're different. And when a guy acts like a girl, acts like a sissy, it's ungodly because he's an effeminate. That's scripture. You've all thought that. I know you have. It's natural. It's God's creation. It's his design. Men need to be tough, disciplined, and focused. It's part of their God-given duty to be a protector. I don't care if you do sports. It doesn't matter to me. Neither does God. But a man that is a sissy is an effeminate man and needs to repent. Be strong. Here's the second example. Uh, consider the sex-specific commands in 1 Timothy 2. And I'm not going. You think I'm going. Um, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, why does it have to tell men not to be angry and dispute? Because we get angry and dispute a lot. That's part of our hormonal nature. So why do guys, why is there a pay gap between men and women? Well, first off, there kind of isn't. But the other thing is that guys are more aggressive. They're not nice, naturally. And they go after it more aggressively than a lot of women do. There's a lot of studies that show this. And it makes sense because we we want to we want to climb and we're less compliant and we can, and that can turn outward in a bad way, you know. Like confessional churches, you you know these guys. Like I, I've been I've been in a confessional church for a long time. These guys are like argue over everything, and everything every single thing is like you're a heretic if you don't agree with them. Everything in the confession is of equal weight. No, it's not. It's all important. But they fight over everything. And disputing can be a terrible thing. So these are male sins. These are very common sins among men. Men lose their temper. right? Women do too. But God thinks men need to hear it specifically. He goes on and says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I don't know, why does it warn women about this? As I look over the crowd here, I am very happy to see that there aren't elaborate hairstyles. Not often a problem with guys, right? We're just trying to get guys to, like, you know, have it look nice. But some of us will walk around looking like crazy people. You know, I remember when I was single, I was like, whatever, you know. Um, But you have to warn women... Because women have a tendency towards vanity. Scripture connects beauty to women over and over and over again. And we know women want to be beautiful. We know that women want to be young. For this entire, think of makeup, how much money. Guys, I, you guys wear a lot of makeup? You guys trying to preserve your youth? Is that, is that happening? No, it's not. No, it's not. You know it's not. It's because women, they, they know that's beautiful. Fertility, productivity. God made women to be productive, and, and fruitfulness is beautiful. But men, we produce in a different way, not from our body, right, but with our body. So like scars on a man, scars on a man is actually kind of cool sometimes. And there's been study that some women find scars actually attractive <laughs> because it shows like he's engaged with something, you know. But, uh, but man, man, it's weird. It's weird if a man is like, 
always paying so much attention to how he dresses, putting lots of thought into it. You know, if a guy dresses really, really nice out of nowhere, I mean, what are you thinking? I'm not going to say it. You meet a guy that dresses really, really nice. He does his hair really, really nice. Nice clothes. What are you thinking? Now, why are you thinking that, brothers? Why are you thinking the thoughts I want you to think right now? Because we all know guys aren't... Vain guys are effeminate guys, and they tend in a certain direction. It's not natural for a guy to be caught up with his appearance, like, overly. That's not normal. And so, again, when we see a guy that's like a sharp, sharp dresser that goes, like, over and above, we think, what's going on with that guy? You know, and we'll tease him, because that's what we do as guys. So, look, I know you know that effeminacy is real. And it, it does take, we don't want to, we want to be careful in our categories. There's black, there's white, and there's a lot of gray, and this takes wisdom. But scripture makes it a category, so it's a category for us, and we want to get rid of it. And men are sick of being weak. Men are sick of it. We are sick of the bill of goods that have been sold to us by this feministic culture. We, we know now that we, it's funny how it works. You get married, and you have kids, and then you realize, oh, I need to become a man. That's how it worked for me. Suddenly, the responsibilities of life, the heaviness of life. This woman depends on me. These kids depend on me. And responsibility tempers. I'm like, okay, what do I do? How do I become a good husband? How do I become a good father? How do I take care of this house? And the culture is telling men, do this. And you'll be a good, be a nice guy and be a soft guy and be emotional. You know what? If you want to be successful in life, you, know, you want to know where you, take your, uh, where you take your counsel from? You take it from women's magazines. Promise you. Friend of every women's magazine. How to get ahead in your career. How to be confident and, and like, don't take no for an answer. That's good counsel for a man. That's really good to, to move ahead. I, I, it's really strong counsel. I'm not saying that doesn't apply to women in some ways. But it's really good counsel. We should be saying that to men. And, and men are waking up to this. We've reached critical mass. And I've got another text for you. It's 2 Samuel. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And this is, this is my warning, my charge for you tonight. Because I am here to warn you. Especially you older men. You don't know how valuable you are. You don't know how valuable you are. I'm going to tell you how you're valuable in a second and how we desperately need you guys with some gray. Right, more gray than me. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me a judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, here's the clincher, in this manner Absalom dealt with all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. How did he do it? He invested time in them. He took interest in them. He sided with them. He defended them. Brothers, Absalom will steal the hearts of your 
your sons if you don't beat them to it. The culture is loaded with Absaloms right now. Maybe some of you have heard of Jordan Peterson. You know who that guy is? Got really popular out of nowhere. Uh, he's kind of like a YouTube phenom, and he uh, talks a lot about sexuality. He's a psychologist, not a Christian at all, but has a sort of Christian glaze to it, a Jungian sort of um, psychoanalyst. And he took a brave stand against uh, not, not being willing to use people's pronouns. Right? He's like, if you're a guy... We use a male pronoun if you're a woman. We use a female pronoun, and it became this big uh, debate, and it, it it made him into this uh, like celebrity of sorts. And he has a book out called uh, Twelve Rules. It's a bestseller. And listen to some of the advice. I mean, young men love this guy. They love, but listen to his advice. I want you older men to listen to this because <laughs> this is what this is why we need you. Uh, he told Joe Rogan who's a, got a really popular podcast. If you want to change the world, you start with yourself and work outward because you build your competence that way. If you can't even clean up your own room, pardon language, who the hell are you to give advice to the world? <laughs> so, clean your room. This radicalizes young men's lives. Clean your room. Make your bed. Start your day. Right? Start your day with order. That's how desperate young men are right now. How, that's how desperate they are. Start with dominion closest to you. Right, your bed. Shouldn't be socks everywhere, guys. Like, have an orderly life. And that is just blowing these young men's minds. They love them. They, they, they have these big shows, like almost like concert venues they're, they're going to. And so what's happened, what's happened is egalitarianism has wiped away the cultural folk wisdom that was handed down from father to son, right? Grandfather to son. And so what I think some of the older folks don't realize is how stupid we are. How how we really need help. You shake a young man's hand, it's a dead fish. Right? Don't shake a hand that way, son. Go in. Squeeze it. You look at a man when he talks to you, in his eyes... They're having such trouble right now in law enforcement because young people are right on their phone all the time and they grew up with screens and uh, in law, law enforcement, you have to read body language. You have to when you walk up to the car. You're reading the whole thing. And they don't, they don't know how to read body language. They don't know how to keep eye contact. So the, they're, they're actually... Some of these uh, sheriffs are sending them out to like talk to strangers, to try to teach them this. Now that's scary. You don't know how to read body language as a uh, as a police officer. You're in a lot of trouble. But that's a big deal in getting an interview, getting a job. That's a big deal, and uh, it's called command presence in law enforcement. When you walk in a room, and you, you have command. You teach a boy that. And teach a boy to be confident. You need that to lead other men. You need that to lead a woman. It's hard to lead a woman. Right? They're not stupid. They're smart. It's hard to lead someone that's an equal. But you're different than them. And so they need that wisdom that you grew up with. They, they need it. You may think you don't have much dad. I promise you, you do. If you grew up pre-internet, pre-high-speed internet, you are a wealth of wisdom. Invest into these young men. Please, by all means, do it. Because there's movements like the Red Pill Movement, which I got involved in the last couple of years. It's a weird, weird mix of things. I didn't know what it was, and I found out about it um, because guys kept citing it. And so it's a strange mix of PUA culture, pickup artist culture, 
and that's as bad as it sounds, men's rights activists, and behavioral psychology rooted in evolutionary science. And But what you notice when you read some of this stuff, and I'm reading it because it's what young men read, okay? Uh, my dad didn't teach me to tie a tie. My dad is an ex-con that has an eighth grade education. He... He didn't, I don't, I don't, I've never seen him in a tie. So, where did I learn to tie a tie? Anyone want to guess? YouTube, that's right. Like, uh, half Windsor, just, uh, oh, it's down here. And then you tie it, it's like up to here. And trying to figure it out just right. Um, which, you know, this, we get a YouTube for everything. And this is where young men go. How to be a man. How to, how to get a woman. How to command respect. How to get a job interview. Right? How to, you know, be respected. They're going on the internet, looking this stuff up. And there's people out there listening, Absaloms. I'm on your side. Listen to me. I'll hear your case. I don't know where their heart's at. Some of them are using them, selling them little courses. Some of them are sincere. I think, I think Jordan Peterson probably really wants to help young men at some level. But they're not Christians. They're not Christians. They're not Christians. And you can't get sexuality right without the gospel. That's why I talked about those two different wrong views. And uh, you can't understand spirit stuff without the Holy Spirit. You need to be regenerated, born again, right? And red, red pill sexuality, though, is, is, is actually helping them get jobs and get women. And guys like results. But it doesn't answer the big questions. The big question is answered by, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the chief end of man? Amen. Right? That orders everything. And so, if you, a woman's not going to satisfy you. A woman can't satisfy you. Sex every day can't satisfy you. It won't. Money, power, influence won't satisfy you. But if it's part of building up God's kingdom, building up God's household, through building up your own household, then it takes on a whole other dimension, doesn't it? Very satisfying. If you live for God, you can sweep floors. Be happy. So these young men, these young men are vulnerable. They're vulnerable, and they need the church to step up and speak. They need, we, they, there's a harvest out there. Don't go after the women and children. Don't do it. Go after the men, and you'll get the women and children. It will happen. They will come. Because men make things safe because they're dangerous. They make things safe because they're dangerous. We keep the bad men out. We do that. We protect the church. We care about truth. Anytime you ordain women, what happens? It goes apostate in a couple years. Why? Because women want to be friends with everybody. Right? They want to include people. Except other women. They don't want to be friends with other women sometimes. But, um, but they want to, we see this happen over and over again. But men are willing to divide and argue. Remember that, don't be angry, don't dispute? That's the, the fallen, twisted version of it. But the, the, the holy version of it is caring about truth and saying, no, that doctrine absolutely matters. We can't, we can't move on that. We're not going to do it. So we, we need churches that are strong, that are going after the men, and the women will come. The women will come because they want truth too. And they know men will give them truth. Godly men. So I said I'd be practical. Let me give you a couple real quick points. I want to talk to the church leaders first. Um... These are really simple things, but all, all the best wisdom in my life has usually been pretty simple uh, that men have given me. So first, go for the men. Go for the men. 
teach and exhort men to pursue manly excellence in health, wisdom, finances, and leadership. Proverbs, right? Solomon's like, here's how to be a man. That's for the whole book. First 14 chapters, he says, son, listen to me, son, son, listen to me. Give me your heart, son. Give me your heart. Are you saying that to young men? Give me your heart. Give me your heart, son. I'll help you. I'll help you to be godly. I'll help you to be fit to sit on a throne. After all, we are a royal priesthood, right? So exhort them to be manly and not to be ashamed of it. Also, address the sins of men and women equally. It's easy to address the sins of men. We, we roll with it pretty well, right? We, but it's, it's hard to address the sins of women from a pulpit. It is not easy. Gossip, um, vanity, infighting, you know, say that. Uh, men need your help anyway. But address the sins of men relatively equally, okay? Um, then also, also just uh, with women, teach, don't forget to teach women to pursue feminine beauty. I feel this feminine beauty is, I, oh man, my wife has long hair and she's got like a pretty, pretty dress and she's surrounded by all my kids. It's like kids coming up to me. I feel like Noah at the ark. Look at all of them, you know. It's beautiful. She fears God. She trusts me. She trusts me. Is it amazing that a woman trusts you? Like, we just act like we know what we're doing half the time. <laughs> Are finances okay? I get it. Right? So I just go for the men, think through, think through, uh, preaching, think through your music, take risk in your sermons, take risk, call it abortion. Men want to have some skin in the game. Alright, don't be scared to do that. Don't, don't play safe all the time. Good, good sermons on Solo de Gloria. Those are great. But let's, let's talk about the, the beauty of, um, beauty of men fighting for the for the gospel, things like that. Think through that. Now, men, I want to give you a few uh, just real practical things that will help you stop being weak, stop being effeminate. First, stop seeking praise. Just stop it. Stop it. God knows the quality of your work. Don't worry about it. He sees. He sees everything. And seeking the praise of people all the time, that is that's weak. It's weak. We need you to be strong. If if you don't if you don't fear man, think how powerful you. I don't. What are they going to do? They're going to kill me? Oh no! I go to heaven. And God will take care of my children. Why? Because God is a father. He's a better father than me. When you're not living to seek the praise of men, then then you can be masculine. Then you can be. Stop self-deprecating. Guys do this all the time. Every once in a while, it's okay. There's a place for it. But I see guys do it all the time. Like, they're always knocking themselves down. It's, it's not really helpful. Don't be cocky. But it doesn't gain you anything. Just, uh, you should be able to laugh at yourself. You don't want to be a self-serious man. These guys are obnoxious. You just want to give them, you know, some grape nuts. Um, but, but stop self-deprecating, especially in front of women. Don't do it. Your wife wants you to be a man that she respects. A man that carries authority. And so start trying to carry it. Don't complain. And never be very com- careful complaining to your wife. She will listen and she will pretend like at some level she cares. And I, she does. But this is just some counsel here. I would counsel you to complain to a brother. Because he actually, you'll find that men sympathize 
at the right time, but also sometimes we'll say, hey, man, come on. Come on, stop being a sissy. You got this. But a wife, she needs your strength. And, and you, you give her confidence. A woman is weighed down with anxiety a lot of times. Right? This was, they talk about this in First Peter chapter 3, right? And so don't, don't complain. Don't complain. Complaining solves nothing. Men, men are, are solvers. They don't whine about the situation. They create a solution with available resources, including prayer. Prayer is powerful. And lastly, don't make excuses. If you fail, own it. Don't whine about, don't whine about it. Don't blame other people's own it com- completely. Think of, uh, Psalm 51. Against you, God, and you alone I've sinned. Oh, she was naked on the roof. It takes two, right? But he owned it. Still his decision. Yeah, I, I made that choice and I was wrong. No excuse for it, sir. Right? Stop making excuses. Own your failures. And that shows, uh, it shows strength. There's a lot of other things I could say. But right now, we just need basic things. Basic things will change the world, right? Don't, it's good to be a man. It's bad to be effeminate. And there are, there are barbarians at the gates. They're in the gates. And, uh, so lift up your brothers. The same I, I've become fond of is, uh, without fraternity, there's no masculinity. Masculinity is learned by imitation. That's why fathers are so important. And so we have biological fathers, but we also have spiritual fathers, right? Men that discipled us. Think about them. You can think about the men that have made you into who you are. So let's pray. Father, oh, we are effeminate. We see it. We see our softness. We see our excuses. We see how we fail to, to discipline ourselves and how we can be controlled by our lusts. And we don't want to be that way anymore, man. Our Father, we want to be manly. We want to be godly. Not according to the machismo of the world. We want to be... Men, according to your word, God. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses in this effeminate age. Help us to lead with strength without becoming a cartoon character, God. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.